Hi, everybody. I'm Robert. I'm an alcoholic. I was just holding my breath on how he was going to introduce me. <laughs> I was kind of jealous, actually, a little bit now. Before, before I begin, let's do take a moment of silence just thinking about those for a second in New York City. Marine, we've got some staffers up there who work for us. And through the grace of God and because Alcoholics Anonymous works once, I actually started working the steps. I haven't had a drink since March 13, 1990. For that, I'm just incredibly, incredibly grateful. A home group meets in Ballantyne, South Carolina. That's right near Lake Murray, about 30 minutes from Columbia, our capital city, which is right. If you're ever down that way, please give us. I'd like to thank Tom for inviting me and, and Phyllis, and both of them are so kind. This has been just a tremendous, tremendous conference. I, Mo got me up at the airport, and Mo was pretty funny about how he explained this deal. He said, we get together and we eat. And we have meetings, and then we eat ice cream, and then we have meetings. And I said, I think I like it already. I, I have just been, it, it truly is an humbling, humbling experience because just to, to listen to the other speakers, this is one of the few conferences that I've been to in quite some time that I can remember that I could relate very well to everyone. It's just tremendous. Uh, uh, Stacy and Joe talking about drinking during the teenage years and everything that comes with that, and, and Bob talking about how he handled it and the amends he was able to make to his family, and even Pauline talking about what happens to us when we start writing scripts so the peoples don't follow. <laughs> so it has been just an incredible, incredibly good experience. I, I, I'm losing, I'm at a loss of words to explain it, and I thank you for In sharing with you all about what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now, the way I go about doing that is to share a little bit about my experience with each of the steps, because it was the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that got me sober. So I'd like to begin with the first step, powerlessness. First time I remember drinking, I'm 13 years old. I get my hands on a half pint of Smirnoff Red Label Vodka, and I walk to school. There's some woods in front of the school, and I get in that forest, and I crack open the bottle, and I drink it. And I'm mad, because nothing happened. Now, I didn't know what to expect was going to happen, but nothing happened until I got into third period English class and threw up all over the back of the classroom. And the magic hit, that switch that got flipped that Stacy was talking about, because as soon as, that, as soon as I threw up, I knew alcohol was going to play a big part in my life because I wanted more. Now, let me run through this again real quick for you. I drank by myself, I drank all I had, all I had was so much that it made me throw up, and the kicker, as soon as I threw up, I wanted more. Now, I have never had that reaction with anything else. Earlier on in the third grade, I got my hands on some spoiled chocolate milk that made me sick enough to throw up. Didn't drink chocolate milk for years, but I drank a lot of that potato juice. Ran across the first mental health counselor that I began abusing and using. They, they called a school psychologist in on me. And she was talking to me like I might have a drinking problem. And I wanted to explain so bad to this lady. It's, but I knew even then that I could not explain that that well. Now later on, I'm 15, 16 years old. And the wise 17-year-old who catches me passing out every time I drink tries to explain to me that, Robert, there ain't nothing wrong with drinking. You just don't have to drink so much. And I remember thinking, how do you do that? 
Now I'm 18 years old. And because I'm drinking and I'm driving, I get pulled for my first DUI. And I explained that to the family, and the explanation went something like this. They were just after me. Okay? They were watching for me. They were just after me. But that was an incredibly hard sell to my family because, you see, my father was killed by a drunk driver back when I was nine years old. And they didn't understand how in the world I could put somebody else's life and family at risk like that. But it wasn't going to be a problem because it was never going to happen again. Got my second DUI when I was 20. And i got to explain a little bit about this because it, it, it sums up my attitude and outlook upon life at the time. I'm 20 years old. I get a letter from the University of South Carolina letting me know that I have been accepted to the University of South Carolina School of Law. So I go out bar hopping in celebration. Now I'm on the bypass of a rural town, and I look in my rearview mirror, and I spot a state trooper behind me. Now I immediately look down and realize that I'm going 40 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. Everything's so good so far, right? But I ain't afraid of him. I ain't afraid of him. I'll show him I'm not afraid of him, so I speed up to 45 to show this man I'm not afraid of him. But I don't want to speed because I don't want to get pulled over. But I ain't slowing down because I ain't afraid of him. So I keep it dead at 45. Now I look in the rearview mirror to make sure he's still following me. And I watch the speedometer to make sure I'm going right at 45. Rearview, speedometer, rearview. And I miss the red light in front of me. Well, I'll go ahead and pull on over because I know he's going to chat with me about this. And it might be my arrogance to this day thinking that I could have talked myself out of it. Wouldn't have been the first DUI I talked myself out of. Wasn't going to be the last. But we were going along fine until he started searching my car. Now, there's not anything in the car, but I've had pre-law classes in college. I know he can't do that. I know he knows he can't do that. He just doesn't know that I know he can't do that. So I tell him. So excuse me, you can't search my car without my consent, unless, of course, I'm under arrest. <laughs> well, after he places me under arrest, I get down to the station and blow in the breathalyzer, and I blow right at a 10. And at the time, that was the level in South Carolina. I blow right at a 10. It's a comedian from Texas. Oh, boy, he used to say, you knew he had the right to remain silent, just the inability to do so. And I know my rights. I know I have the right to demand a blood test. So I demand a blood test. Blood comes back 18. <laughs> and I walk away with my second DUI having shown them who they were dealing with. <laughs> I took that same arrogance into law school with me, and, it, and it, it treated me well for a while. But then some funny things started happening. Never had any control over how much I drank. The first time I recall, remember, getting a hold of something I couldn't finish. I'm 15 and I got a hold of a quart of moonshine. I could not finish that quart. I remember waking up in the back of a guy's car. I was in a pool hall when this happened, and the guy that owned the pool hall stuck me in the back of his car, and I had vomited all over, not knowing how I got there. And the second time that happened, it was a little less. And before it was all over with, that's just, just what happens when I drink. But I had, when I was in law school, I had some control over starting. I could decide, okay, I'm not going to drink today, 
and I could make it stick. And I lost that. I started making promises I couldn't keep. Now, these weren't major promises. I was not swearing off drinking. I was saying stuff like, I will leave the bar at midnight rather than close it down at 2. I'd look up, it'd be 1.30. I'm thinking, well, might as well. I walked across. They had a bar right across from the school, and I went over there to drink lunch, order a pitcher of beer, and reach up for it. Hey, the, the, the waitress took my hand in both of hers, and she said, oh, Robert, I'm so sorry. I said, oh, I'm just a little nervous. You get some beer in me, I'll be fine. Sure enough, I got a few beer in me. Steady as a rock. The other kind of mental stuff that was going on in my head, there was, in Columbia, South Carolina, where I was, if y'all are familiar with that area, there's an area known as Five Points, and there's a lot of bars in Five Points, a lot of different kinds of bars in Five Points. I'd go to the fern bars, the piano bars, dressed up about the way I am now, sit down there with, uh, with other folks and talk about how we were going to run this thing one day. Before it was said and done, I was at the sports bar talking about the game. And then before it was really over, I was at this dark, dank, scuzzy pool hall hustling drinks. And the thing about that place is it stayed open to 6 in the morning. So I could hustle drinks to 6 in the morning, walk 100, 200 yards back to my place, take a shower and go on into school. And I did that for about a year. But then I woke up one morning, I couldn't move my foot up and down. I could move it side to side. But I couldn't move it up and down. I could take my hand and move it up and down, but I just couldn't move it. I had to clop to the clinic. The first thing the doctor asked me is how much you had to drink last night. I said about, about normal. I, really, I didn't have a clue how much I had to drink. And I'm so very grateful that, that that left on its own. I had a friend of mine later tell me they call that Jake Leg. He explained to me that it was a sign of chronic alcoholism. And I was just glad to know that I had been promoted to something chronic. But I'm sitting down there and I'm actually really trying hard. I'm not swearing off drinking. I'm not even really trying to cut back. I'm just trying to be more careful with it. But now I've got a problem because I, re- I didn't graduate on time. I started missing classes. I don't know what in the world I was thinking about. At the end, I, was, I had a class scheduled on a Monday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, and that just didn't happen. <laughs> Couldn't make it from the bar at 6 in the morning. <laughs> but then I got an application in to take the bar exam to be able to become a lawyer, and it was just embarrassing. They actually had a question whether or not I had it. That was bad enough, but then they asked me for my arrest record. They asked me for my arrest record and only left me three spaces. I had to attach a separate sheet because I had gotten my driver's license back and had it for about a month before I had gotten pulled for my third DUI in law school. And I started getting picked up public drunk. That was just as embarrassing as it could be. Somewhere along the line after my third DUI, I realized that I could not drink and drive. It took me a little while longer that I wasn't very good at drinking and walking either. <laughs> I would get nailed public drunk to 200 yards from the bar to my house. They really were after me. They really were. And I'd have to save back $2 to get a taxi cab to drive me 200 yards. It used to kill me because you could get a pitcher of beer for $2. And I'm sitting down there and I'm looking at this list and I'm thinking, whoever looks at this list will probably think I have a problem with alcohol. So I better tell them yes. But now I've got a decision to make. What do I do? I can't just leave it like this. I've got to show these folks I'm trying to do something to help myself. And, and I made the mistake of calling my sister and let her know that I might drink a little too much a little too often. And the first thing she did was she had me bundled up to talk to a guy who was an alcoholic's nom. Now, she knew that he was in Alcoholics Anonymous because he told his pastor 
And his pastor was my brother-in-law. And because he took the time to tell his pastor that he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, my sister Sally had someplace to take me. And I got there, and he summed me up pretty quickly. Because, you see, when I first called Sally, my sister, I was so scared. But by the time I got over there, I was probably making a little too much out of this after all, you know. And he was sitting down there telling me how Alcoholics Anonymous could change my life. And I remember thinking, wait a minute now. I didn't say this, but I was thinking, I don't need my life changed. I just need out of this little bit of trouble I'm in. And if I could get you to go talk to the judge for me, maybe we this thing could work itself out. But it didn't work out. So now I really did have to do something. So I checked myself into Morris Village, which is a state treatment facility there in Columbia. That's why I really love the little, the little badges to get you in the meal ticket. They look very familiar. Now I had no intention of stopping drinking. I went there to build my resume. Because I had to show there was going to be a committee of folks to decide whether or not I could take this test to be a lawyer. And I had to show them I was trying to do something to help myself. So I went there for 30 days, I think. And then about six or seven months later, I went in front of this committee. It's called the Committee on Character and Fitness. And I had to convince them that I had sufficient character and fitness to let, them, let me take this test to be a lawyer. But I've got to tell you all, I was smooth, okay? I had prepared for months for this thing. I had thought out every possible question that they could ask me, and I had a good answer for it. And then I'd go back and make a better answer to the good answer. I was ready for them. Had the chaplain from the treatment center there to speak on my behalf. Had the dean of the law school there to speak on my behalf. And I was answering their questions, and everything was on time. I just knew I was good to go. Until one guy started asking me questions I wasn't prepared for. Things like, do I have a home group? I was going, no, there's a lot of groups in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm just visiting around to find one I'm comfortable with. Do I have a sponsor? No, but I've, gone, I've written down to a short list of people to interview. I had no idea just how bad that answer was at the time. <laughs> but he did. And they didn't tell me no. They told me to wait a year and reapply. I can drink and get sober in a year. They'll never know. So I went back out drinking, and I got to spend a little time on how this happened because this tells you a lot about my attitude and outlook upon life at the time. That whole time I was sober, I did not stop going to the bars. I just wasn't drinking. I was to, at the bars just as regular as ever. I actually had started going to AA meetings, so I was going to the bars and AA meetings at the same time, which was kind of interesting. But I wasn't drinking, so everything was okay. Well, I go back to the bar, and, well, let me start stop back. When I started doing this, I told the bartender that my name was Robert Hill and I was an alcoholic. Now, there may come a time when I ask him to serve me a beer. Don't do it. And if I ask him to serve me a beer and he said no, I was going to say, forget we had this conversation. Don't forget. Sure enough. I'd like a beer. Robert just told me not to sell you a beer. Forget what I told you. Robert just told me not to forget. We almost got into a fight over whether or not he was going to serve me this beer. He finally sells me the beer, and I have not, I don't know how much I had to drink. But I know I went into a blackout, and I had, I had started experiencing those early on. That's just a whole other realm of terror. Early, early on, I was passing out, and I finally got past the fear in that. But with blackouts, it's just the most amazing thing. It's like a Star Trek transporter. You're over here, 
talking to somebody, and then you're over there talking to somebody else, and you don't know how you got from there to there. You may or may not be in the same clothes. You may or may not be in any clothes at all. Okay? So I'm through this blackout, and when I come out of it, my first thought, my first thought was, if this guy would have just done what I asked him to do. Because I learned very early on that you don't have to accept the responsibility for your own act. You can always find somebody else to blame. Even if it's a God you don't believe in. Well, at that point, when I had gotten out of the treatment center, I'd actually moved into a homeless shelter. But that was okay, because I was the only guy there with a law degree. And I had moved out of the homeless shelter, and I was living with a friend of mine. And then he moved out, and it was me by myself there. I'm 21, 22 years old. And it got bad. I had been bouncing in and out of AA for a number of years at that point. And I just got to the point where I knew I was hopeless and helpless. See, the first step was a done deal for me at this point. I knew I was powerless over alcohol. Reality had stripped past any denial of that. I didn't fool myself that it was going to be different this time. I knew it was going to be different this time. I knew it was going to be worse. But I hadn't done what I needed to do to get any hope that there was any way through it. And the only way I saw out was to kill myself. And I'm in this little apartment, and I've got to tell you, in my mind, there's really nothing much worse than a drinking drunk sitting drinking and thinking. Because I planned this thing. And the plan that I hit on is I had a little kitchen there in the apartment. I had a gas oven. So I moved the TV into the little kitchen. Moved the recliner into the little kitchen. Save up enough money for a nice bottle of scotch. I had discovered scotch somewhere along the line. So I'm sitting down there drinking the scotch, watching TV, knowing that I was going to pass out because I always passed out at that point. The only difference was is this time I weren't going to wake up. In the middle of this thing, I had what our book calls a moment of clarity, what lawyers call a lucid interval. When I went to light my fourth or fifth cigarette, and the flame jumped a little higher than normal, and I realized I could blow myself up. And I did not want to burn to death. Now say what you want to about cigarette smoking. And I quit a number of years ago. But once upon a time, saved my life. <laughs> now you would think that that would have been enough to help me see the light of day. But it wasn't. I did not stop drinking. And then I had an employer that got me to into an outpatient treatment program. And this was the program. There was a one counselor there that helped me do this deal, and, and I, I truly owe him my life, because now again, the first step's a done deal, and I'm moving into the second step, finally getting sober here, but when I went and see him, I saw, I, I went and I said, man, you've got to develop a great, you got to develop a special program for me, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work for me, I've been going to meetings for about four years at that point, he said, excuse me, I said, I'm telling you, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't work for me, he said, Robert, that's your problem. The issue has never been whether or not Alcoholics Anonymous would work for you. The issue has always been whether or not you would work for it. And I said, I'll tell you, I don't understand. I've been going to meetings now for four years. He said, have you worked? He said, well, why don't you give the steps a shot before you write this thing off? And I, but now I've got major problems because I have been going to meetings for so many years. And I hear you all talk about higher power this, higher power that. And I know you're talking about God. And if God's involved in this deal, I'm not interested. Thank you very much. You see, I had convinced myself that there was no God, or at least not one that cared about me.
When my dad was killed by the drunk driver, he was a Southern Baptist minister, and he was coming back from a trip, planning a trip to Jerusalem. And I was convinced that God had killed him, and I didn't know why. So you can talk about higher power, but I want no part of it. This counselor came to my rescue again and explained to me that the second step talks about coming to believe in something greater than me. The first part of the twelfth step talks about having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Maybe I'll find what I need somewhere between steps. Now, I didn't have any idea this would work. I had just tried everything else. So what I came to believe in was trying the steps. My third step decision was just a decision to work the rest of the steps. That was the... But now i got a major problem. i got this four-step inventory. I used to sit in meetings talking about the four-step, thinking I was working the four-step by talking about working it. I went back to my first home group here a few months ago, and there was a lady there that, that was there when I was there the first time around. I hadn't been there in probably 20 years. And she said, Robert, I was just talking about you last week. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I was explaining to this guy how we sat at this table arguing about how to go about doing the fourth step. She said, I told him I went ahead and did mine and stayed sober. <laughs> but I finally again got a hold of a sponsor who took me through the fourth step the way the big book suggests that it be done. And I started having these revelations. Things like God did not kill my father. Girl, who had a little too much to drink. That was in that accident with my dad. And out of all the times that I drove drunk, I could have hurt somebody just as easily. And if I had, that would have been on me. That wouldn't. So I was able to let God off the hook. I had, I had been waiting for years. I had built up this wall. The, the deal that I had with God before then was, if you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And if anything was going to happen, God had to apologize to me first. I remember waking up in a Richland County cell one day, drunk tank, cold concrete floor, old wool blanket. You don't know where that blanket had been. And I wanted to just, just holler out in prayer, just, just God help me. And I stopped myself because I didn't want to break my deal into the bar. But now through working the fourth step, I had realized that my perception was so far off. A couple other things I realized. I'm in the middle of working this fourth step, and this song keeps popping around in my head from Jimmy Buffett. Wasted away again in Margaritaville. I don't know if y'all are familiar with this song. But Jimmy, bless his heart, starts off by blaming a woman. I can do that. <laughs> and then about halfway through the song, he says, well, it's really nobody's fault. And then at the end of the song, he realizes that it was his fault. And that's the revelation I got through actually doing the fourth step. Now I've got to share this thing, and I'm ready to share this thing. And I get a sponsor, and at the time, the guy that I asked to hear my fourth or fifth step was eight years sober. You might as well have said 800 years sober. I don't know how anybody can stay sober eight years. But I go to him, and I share with him, and this guy's not batting an eye. He's, not, he's making me mad is what's happening. He's not batting an eye. I'm thinking I've got to make up some stuff just to get this guy's attention. And I finish up, and then the miracle happened because he started sharing a little bit of his life with me. And at eight years sober, some areas of his life, he was a lot sicker than I was. <laughs> this guy was sick. <laughs> and that's where I got the hope that if Alcoholics Anonymous can work in this guy's life, it can work in my life. 
I did not get the hope that Alcoholics Anonymous had to offer sitting in an AA meeting talking about hope. I got it actually working the fifth step. Now I'm doing the sixth and seventh, and I'm ready to let the character defects go. And it's the same character defects you've heard about all weekend. Arrogance and dishonesty. Just this whole pride. I'm willing to let it go, and I, and I, and I humbly ask that it is removal, and I move on, and I've got the list of folks that I want to make the amends to. And, and I've got to tell you, life is not very good right now, okay? It, and it used to kill me, because one of the things I had to do in my, in my well... It used to kill me trying to figure out about this whole amends process because now I'm sober. But yet I have to face the consequences of what I did when I was drinking. And I wanted to tell the judge, look, I'm really trying, I'm really trying to get sober now. <laughs> she wasn't buying it. It was my last public drunk I had to try to make right. And I actually, I've been to law school. I'm not a lawyer. They won't let me be a lawyer, but I've been to law school. I actually look up, and in Columbia, South Carolina at the time, you, you had to be more than drunk in public to be convicted of a public drunk. You also had to be obnoxious. I have a defense. I was not obnoxious. Problem was I was in a blackout, and I really wasn't sure what I said or did. So I go to court, and after hearing from the police officer, I realized I didn't have a defense. So I'm convicted of my last public drunk, and I'm sober. But I had to face those consequences. And then in the same thing, making these amends. I had to go back and pay all the bars the money that I owed them for liquor I had already drank, not planning on drinking anymore. Now, what was up with that? I was always willing to pay the bar bill to make sure that I had to, you know, run the tab next time around. But I had to go back and make sure that this thing was covered. And i got to tell you all, to be honest, I did not do that out of the generosity of my heart. I did that because I knew that they would sign an arrest warrant on me for the bad check. And I didn't want to go to jail sober. Been to jail drunk, that ain't a problem. But I did not want to go to jail sober. So I finally get that amend made. And some of the rest of the amends, particularly with my family, I'll be talking about in a little bit. At this point, I'm about a year and a half, two years sober. I'm at a job working for some lawyers down in the low part of South Carolina. I'm going to about five meetings a week. And they asked me to serve as the group's general service representative. I looked in the book. They suggest two years, and they asked me at a year and a half. I just knew it was because of my spiritual wisdom and maturity. Come to find out, looking back on it later, it was just my turn. But I started going to Columbia to area assemblies, and that's just a whole brand new world of Alcoholics Anonymous open. We're actually pretty much organized a lot more than I thought we were. It was like talking about getting rocketed into a different dimension. This was it for me. And I, and I fell in love with the service structure and how we go about doing that stuff. Also, at two years sober, I went back to the committee. Some of the same people were on it. And they let me take the test this time. So now I'm a licensed lawyer. I'm actually a licensed lawyer. I buy a house. So I'm a licensed lawyer and a property owner in Hampton, South Carolina. I remember I was so pleased with that. I, I was actually out cutting my yard. I remember there was a time I didn't have keys, okay? <laughs> I didn't have anything to lock up. I get sober, they give me keys to other people's stuff. I mean, it's the most amazing thing. And life's good. Now, and I, I'm able to serve in different ways, and I'm traveling across the state, but, but there's a hole there because I'm single. Now, I had been dating this lady, but we knew it wasn't going to work out. We knew it wasn't long-term. 
but I'm single and I want to settle down. I'm 35 years old and I'm not sure what to do. I knew I wanted to get into a relationship with an AA because I didn't want to try to explain this to anybody else. AA was so much a part of my life, I didn't want to try to break anybody in, okay? But I'm traveling around all over the state doing this service work. So I figured I would multitask. And i got to tell y'all ladies something. Y'all look a little different when a decision like that's made. You can see they've been looking at the same lady for years, but now you've noticed dimples. And I got hooked up with this lady, and, and, and bless her heart. I'm seven years sober. She's five years sober. No reflection on her whatsoever. Wholly a reflection on me. But she drove me nuts. <laughs> I'm sitting there going through things at age 35 I should have gone through when I was 15 and never did. I'm going through stuff like, does she like me? Will she answer if I call? It was horrible. I got so broken in that relationship that I finally called and had my sister try to bail me out. I needed a female perspective on this, and I called my sister, and the first thing she says is, Robert, let me introduce you to some normal women. I went, oh, what do you mean normal? <laughs> there is no normal women. There's no normal people. There's just folks that don't share like we do in AA meetings. She got me hooked up on a blind date the Saturday after Thanksgiving in 1996. Within a week, I took this lady to her first AA meeting, which was a meeting that I was the speaker. She did not run, and I figured she might be a kid. We got married the next March of 1911, and we've been married since then. We just had Fort anniversary. Just amazing, amazing. <laughs> Truly a gift from God. I'm going to now go into, I've been working the steps forward up to this point. I'm going to go in and tell you a little bit about my experience working them backwards. Because after I got married, this was the late 1990s, the stock market was going nuts. People were day trading. And I figured, you know, if we worked really hard, I could might retire about as old as I am now. And we did. Both of us were working a tremendous amount. I was in a home group that was small, and it was small enough where I knew what they were going to say before they said it. And worse yet, I knew that they knew what I was going to say before I said it. So I figured, why get to his many meetings since I already know what they're going to say? So the first thing that went, well, really the first thing that went was working with the newcomer. How I justify that was, I have worked with newcomers. It's somebody else's time to work with newcomers. We've got a principle called rotation. I'm going to exercise it. I am not working with any more newcomers. But then I started cutting back on the home group meetings because I knew what they were going to say, but don't worry. Everything's okay because I had run this all past my sponsor. See, before that, I decided to sponsor myself. <laughs> Who knew me better than me? And besides, at that point, I was about 10 years sober and wanting anybody in my area 10 years sober. I'd have to go 30 miles to find somebody. So I started sponsoring myself, and I checked in, but also checked in with God because my prayer life's still going on very well. I'm still doing the prayer and meditation. And then in the middle of a prayer... I realized that what I was praying for, I could do that. I don't need to take that guy. I can do that. And as time went on, there was more and more things that I could do and less and less things that I was taking to God in prayer. So now the 11th step's getting cut back. And you know, pretty soon, the amends weren't getting made as promptly. Because you know you don't have to make amends if you don't do wrong. Particularly if you're never wrong. And there was no inventory going on. 
And I am convinced to this day I had worked myself all the way back to step two. And the only thing that stood between me and a drink was the thought. Now I had quite a lot of thoughts of killing, but I never had the thought of drinking. I'd come home every day in a rage about what happened at work, how they were mistreating me at work. And, and looking back, there was some interesting things going on there. But it was just my craziness and working the steps backwards. And, and I fell back on the serenity prayer because there is a part in the serenity prayer that talks about changing the things that you can. And I was so unhappy with work, my wife and I, we, we picked up shop and moved. We moved to Newberry, South Carolina to be about halfway between my mother and her mother, her mother and dad at the time. And I'm working for me, just me. And that's an interesting experience. If, if y'all have ever it, it tried this, I've got to tell you, when you look in the mirror and you realize that your boss is a pain to work for and your employees don't do what you want them to do and it's all you, there's not a month that doesn't go by I don't do something I wouldn't fire somebody for doing. But one of the, the, one of the things in making the jump is, is it gave me the opportunity to get back involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I did, and I've got to tell you a little bit about that. I met a group that met in a club, and the coffee really wasn't that good. They didn't know how to make coffee. And they didn't read the right stuff at the right time. So I was going to have to try to see what I could do to get that fixed. And in the part of always doing all of that, that group didn't become my group until I actually started getting involved. I actually had to start back at the beginning. But by doing that and getting back involved in the area activities I was elected as South Carolina's alternate delegate, I never wanted to be delegate. I wanted to be chairman. I thought I'd be a good chairman. But the notion of going up to New York City for a week-long business meeting, just it wasn't the first thing that just popped in my head as having fun. But it was truly, truly just an incredible, marvelous experience. And I got up there, and if you've ever sat through an AA business meeting, imagine that times seven, and you'll get an idea about it. And I got back, and I've got all these ideas running around in my head, and everything's going along, and I got it prepared because my first report's that very next weekend. And in the middle of all this, this guy pops up and asks me to sponsor him. But you're going to have to go with me to this delegates report because I don't have any other time. And he said, okay. So we'll spend the time. You talk to me on the way to me giving this delegates report. You listen to my report, and we'll talk on the way back. He said, okay. This guy was a year sober. His girlfriend was two weeks sober. I agreed with him he had a problem. And I asked him to inventory it and get back in touch with me. And then I didn't hear from him. Because they went out and he read. And I'm thinking, this is not supposed to happen. I am the delegate from South Carolina. Yes, I had to make some meaning from that. And this is the meaning that I got from it. I go to a lot of conferences. I do a lot of workshops and different presentations. And when we get together at a place like this, we look pretty good. We really do. We clean up oil. We re I was joking earlier, we, need, we, we, need, we have to have name badges or we need a secret handshake. You, you can't tell us from the Al-Anons when we get together. You really can't, not unless we start sharing. I mean, there was a time that you could look at me and know I was a drunk, but that's been a while back. So I forget exactly what we're dealing with. And we're dealing with matters of life and death here. And that's the meaning that I got from that. But I personally have to be careful being from South Carolina. Our, our area number is 62, which always reminds me of rule two, which always reminds me of not to take myself too serious. 
But I don't want to bend over backwards and not taking myself not serious enough and wind up taking our program. There's our program that saved my life for others. And that's the meaning that I'm... Now, in the process of all this, I'm doing the tenth step. I'm pretty good about keeping the inventory. Somewhere along the line, between in the first part of step 12, I have discovered a God of my understanding. And it's a truly remarkable God in this sense. My God's humble. Because I know that my God knows that if there had been any other way for me to get out of this thing, I'd have done it. So my higher power took me on my... And I'm praying. And I've had a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening. My spiritual awakening was a very simple one. I woke up one morning and realized I didn't have the desire to drink the day before. I don't know how to explain that except to call it what it is. And for me, it's a spiritual awakening. You see, for years, there wasn't a day that went by since I threw up in eighth grade English class until that point that I didn't want to drink. Didn't drink every day, but I wanted one every day. But here I hadn't even thought about it. The obsession had been removed. Now I'm getting into step 12 and having have had that spiritual experience. The way I was carrying the message is actually doing the service work through the particular service structure, sponsoring guys. And then I'd like to end with just the last part of step 12, which is practicing these principles in all our affairs. I was going to touch this button to find out what time I have, and I'm going to do that again. Okay. Five quick stories. These are snapshots in time, like before and after pictures, just to give you an idea about what I was like and what I'm like now. First story begins with a stepfather. After my dad died, my mom remarried. She remarried another Southern Baptist. And this guy was a piece of work. He was, if y'all had bad thoughts when I said Southern Baptist preacher, this guy was a poster child for that. i got to tell you, a piece of work. And I always wanted to tell him, but I knew I couldn't tell him drinking because I knew he'd be able to dismiss it as drunk talk. So I decided I wanted to wait a year and then tell him off. And then he up and died on me about nine months into this. Could not believe it. Didn't even give me the courtesy of living long enough to tell him off. And I made that death all about me. And I caused my mother pain. She had just lost her second husband, and it was all about me. Now, she remarried again. I'm not saying she's killing these. She's just outliving them. But she remarried again. And this guy, bless his heart, I mean, this guy named Charlie. And I remember Charlie talking to my mom and said, said, Ruth, don't try to talk to that boy after he's been drinking. He's got a hangover. He's not going to hear what you're saying. And my mama said, well, he's either drunk or hungover all the time. <laughs> when am I supposed to talk to him? And he, he died in a hospital room full of friends. And he passed away when I was holding his hand. And I was able to eat. And I don't know how you get from where I was to where I was without the transforming, redemptive power of the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't explain it. I can just do my best to try to describe it. But I don't know how you get from there to there. Back about the time that I was tried my suicide attempt, my mother knew that things were bad too. She forged my name to a life insurance policy to make sure she hadn't. And around that whole time, I called her up, hitting her up for money. Because I was, I was just hopeless and helpless. I couldn't. I just didn't know what to do. And I remember I, I drove her to tears. And I remember her crying to me whether or not I wanted her to just go ahead and die then so I could get everything she had then. And I remember telling her, no, I don't want you to die. She had a stroke a while back, and she's now in a, 
she's doing well. But she calls me her office manager because I'm in charge of her finances. I pay her bills. We were at a CVS pharmacy where she was picking up some knickknacks and stuff, and, and the bill came to about $20. She only had like 10 or 15 You know you could take that money out. I said, I know, Mom, but I can handle it this time. This time I can handle it. And I don't know how you get from there to there without the transforming and redemptive power of the 12 steps. Last year, my father-in-law passed away. They had been married for, oh, how long? A long time. Over 50 years. And through part of her grieving process, she began keeping a journal. And she shared with me that she wrote down in her journal that she knew her husband was in heaven talking to my dad, letting him know how proud he was. Now, when I was drinking, I did not meet the folks. Didn't have those kind of relationships. So whatever I did to prompt that from her, two more quick stories. My wife has been a, involved in church all her life. It's, it's, the, it's the most remarkable thing. She's been a church member. She started up, and we were in, when we moved to Newberry, it's a little town. She took a job playing a church organ in an even smaller town. But the community choir director was a member of that church. And the community choir director kept bugging me about getting involved in the church choir. And I had absolutely no interest in getting either involved in the church choir or getting involved in the community choir. And she kept bugging me, kept bugging me. And I said, okay, what do you want me to do? And we were coming up on Easter time, and she said, I think you'd make a great Judas. I said, I don't think so. <laughs> she said, well, here, at least read the script. I'm looking at this script, and I know this is not biblical, but whoever wrote this script had, it, had me nailed. Judas had some of the best lines, some of the stuff like, it's not my fault. I'm thinking I might be able to pull this off. And I get in there and do this thing, and in the middle of this thing, it's going really well. I'm surprised. My wife is incredibly surprised. We, and we had a discussion where she said, did you know you could do this? And I said, no, I didn't have a clue I could do this. And she said, well, how do you do what you're doing? I said, I just remember a time when nothing. I can't imagine you ever being dishonest. Now, how did that happen? I can't explain it. I can just describe it. And I describe it by attributing it to the transforming and redemption. When I was in the homeless shelter coming out of the treatment center, there were three kind of people in the world. There were folks that could help me, folks that could hurt me, and folks I didn't care about one way or the other. If you couldn't help me or hurt me, you weren't on my radar. And my only goal in life was to take the people that could hurt me, make them into people that could help me, and then use you up. Today, just because I've been able to serve and have been asked to serve Alcoholics Anonymous in different ways, I've got, I've got friends all over North America, all over the United States and Canada. And, it, and it's truly a remarkable thing because I'm sitting out, it's the kind of relationships that it, the connection's almost immediate. And it's the kind of friendships that come when you stand side by side, sharing a common vision and shared solution and fulfilling a task greater than yourself. And I don't know if I'd have gotten that any other way, but and I don't know if I would have gotten it had it not been a matter of life and death for me. And I thank you so much for now becoming part of my circle of friends and for having me here this weekend. Thanks.